0: I hope um, that uh, what we do tonight is really helpful to you. I'll tell you how this came about. I, I had a thought uh, back earlier in the semester, and I bounced it off Pastor Stephen. And here was my thought. You guys are so faithful. I mean, I, I really want to pat you on the back. I look out there every Sunday morning and see a large group of you that come on Sunday mornings. And every Sunday morning, you come and you expect me to open God's Word and explain the Bible to you and give you something that's helpful to your life. And I picked the topic on Tuesday nights or uh, or, or here at the bridge, uh, Pastor Stephen comes and you come and you listen, you open your Bibles, you listen, you want something that's going to help you. And he picks the topics and I just bounced off him. I said, what if you guys pick the topic tonight? Now there's no way that uh, I could do like a series of 30 (laughs) of your topics, but what I thought we could do is... Rather than me preaching one sermon, I could preach a series of very short sermons tonight and answer the questions that you offered me. So what I'm going to do tonight is uh, I, we're going to put questions that you wrote, the questions that you submitted up on the board. I'm going to answer those and um, as best I can, and we'll go through as many of them as we can possibly um, get through tonight, uh, and so that's what, what we're going to work on. So, uh, I answer a couple of the questions real quick that don't have biblical answers. Number one, yes, I am. Uh, This is a Lululemon quarter zip. Uh, These are Lululemon slacks. I am a Lululemon kind of guy. Somebody asked that. So, I I thought I'd just answer the question, okay? They're very comfortable, they're also very expensive. Um, uh, Secondly, uh, I went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, my blood runs orange, and that's why I talk about Tennessee so much. I grew up in Tennessee. I didn't grow up in Texas. So if that am- helps to answer the question, um, great. So what I thought I would do is I would start off with the softball question, with the easiest possible question that anybody could ask, ask me, um, and uh, that's question number one. Question number one, can gays go to heaven? That was what you asked me. Yeah, real softball, right? But I am not surprised that you asked me this question because this is the world in which you live, in which everything is saturated with sexual identity. That is the world in which you live. So you deserve a fair, honest, and uh, let me say this, thorough answer to that question. So let me uh, read a couple of verses of scripture for you, and then I'm going to talk about them for just a few minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God Such were some of you but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So let me talk about this question uh, and give you my best answer at that, which might seem obvious from the text. The first thing that I want to say to you, though, is this. There is a difference in struggling with sin and surrendering to sin. There is a huge difference between someone who is tempted and who has a, a, a sin in their life, and we have all got one somewhere, that sort of has its claws in them and draws them, and someone who just gives themselves over to a lifestyle. When Paul mentions this whole list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and he lists a whole bunch of sins, not just homosexuality, right? Are we tracking? Does he list a whole bunch of sins? Yes, he does. He lists among those sins fornication. Fornication is sex before you get married. Adultery is sex with someone other than your spouse after you get married. He mentions that. He mentions being a drunkard. He doesn't just say somebody who makes a mistake, they go out and get drunk. He says a drunkard. This is someone whose lifestyle is given over to drunkenness. This is what Paul says. None of those people are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's not Bob's opinion. That's what Paul wrote in the passage. Anyone who gives them over to, themselves over to any sinful lifestyle reveals that Christ is not Lord of their lives, and whether it is homosexuality or serial adultery or drunkenness or being a, 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 a thief, such a person uh, indicates that they have never known the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to mention... A couple of other things because I think the question, while I understand its relevance for your generation, is a little too simple. Because here's another reality. That everyone struggles with something. And same-sex attraction is something that people who really love Jesus, some people who really love Jesus, struggle with. And I think we have done a disservice in the church sometimes by taking homosexuality and separating it out like it's this horrible, despicable sin and all the rest of our sins are respectable. That is not what the New Testament teaches. That that is completely opposite to what the New Testament teaches. All of our sin is an abomination to God. All of our sin is reprehensible in the eyes of God. So... When we do that, when we take homosexuality or same sex attraction, not even the person who sins in that way, but somebody who's same sex attracted, and we separate that out, and we say, Your sin is worse than our sin, the other people over here. What we do is we shove them off in a corner, and we give them no way to come and say, Hey, look, I'm struggling with this. I've got an issue here. They can't be open. They can't be honest. They can't be transparent. They start pretending and eventually your strength to pretend runs out. So what I would say to you is, uh, anyone who gives himself over to any sinful lifestyle and lives in rebellion against God is not gonna go to heaven, and homosexuality is one of those. Yes, that's the answer to the question. But I would also say that we are all tempted by something. There is something in my life, there's something in your life that you are drawn toward. And to be tempted is not a sin. Now, I want to make one final point on this particular question that I think begs to be made. And that is this, the last verse that I read. Verse 11. Pop pop verse 11 back up there. Great. Thanks, guys. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. God's grace can save any kind of sinner. I I really want to zero in on this. I really want to come come down on this and, and make this as clear as I can. God loves all kinds of sinners. God loves sinners. He sent Jesus for all kinds of sinners. And no matter what kind of sin or mistake you have made, I want you to know... There is grace. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. There is not, in that list that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians, an unforgivable sin. All of those sins are forgivable, and they can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. All right, so that's question number one. Glad we started off with something light and uh, humorous, right? Yeah. All right, question number two. And, And by the way, these are your questions. You you wrote the questions, I'm just answering the question you gave me, right? So if you don't like what you heard tonight, blame it on whoever wrote the question. Um, if God never leaves the one behind, what about the people he knows won't go to heaven? Does he not even try with them or does he still try to save them even if he already knows the outcome? Okay, that's, that's a good question. I would say that the expression... Uh, that God never leaves the one behind, you're probably drawing that from the song that we sing sometimes in worship. And that's not a bad thing, but that is a poetic expression of a parable in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 15, Luke told some stories, and he tells this story about a guy who's got 100 sheep, and he's a shepherd, and he counts one night, and he's got 99, and one of them has wandered off, and so he leaves the 99. And he loves the one so much that he goes after the one and he searches for it and he finds it and he brings it back. So that's the, the kind of the reference to the that God never leaves the one behind that I, I want to help you with. But in answer to your question, here's what I want you to know: God sent Jesus for all people. God sent Jesus for all people, and God desires for all people to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God sent Jesus for all people. Secondly, I would say to you that God desires for all people to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. That God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God sent Jesus for all people. He died for all people. God wants all people to be saved. Uh, 1 John 2, verse 2 says he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So, God wants all people to be saved. But God also has another attribute to his character. And that is God knows everything. God knows the end before the beginning ever begins. So God knows exactly who's going to be saved. While God desires all people to be saved, he knows who's going to be saved. And that's kind of the root of your question here. So does God just leave them alone? Does he do nothing with them, uh, with those people that he knows won't be saved? I don't believe that's the answer to the question. Let me tell you the answer to the question. God has done something. Yes, he sent Jesus, but that's not the answer I'm going to give you. Let me tell you what God's done. God gathered a people, and he called that people the church. And he gave the church a commission. And that commission is that we are to go and make a free offer of the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet. That is our assignment. God's answer to the question, does he just leave them alone or does he even try to save them, is yes, God's trying to save them through us. That's the point of the church, that God wants us to offer them the gospel. It is our responsibility to take the gospel to all people. Once you present the gospel to all people, then how they respond is between them and God. We, we, We can't control that. But God's answer to that question is, yes, I am doing something about it, and I'm wanting to use you to do it. You're my people. You are my my redeemed community on earth. You're supposed to be my messengers here. So that's God's response to that question. All right. Question number three. I loved question number three. I don't know who wrote this, but I loved this because all of you are going to face this, okay? Okay. Uh, well, all of you. Some of you may stay here in Wichita Falls. If you do, great. We'd love to have you. But a lot of you are going somewhere. Some of you laugh. <laughs> yeah, stay here, right. <laughs> How do I find a church when moving to a new city? How do I know they're preaching the truth and not bending scripture? I really like the last expression. So let me give you my response to this question. Because, look, there are churches out there where um, I just couldn't go. I'll be honest and say I, I couldn't. Their beliefs are just totally different from what I would believe. Um, there, are also some, uh, there are also some real kooks in church life. I mean, you can find some places where there are kind of nutty people in churches, right? I mean, they're on religious television, I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, hitting people over the head and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I digress. So let me answer the question, though. How do I find a church when I'm moving to a new city? Number one, uh, you know where you're going. Google. Now, it's not that simple. No, but seriously, you know where you're going. If you're going to Dallas, if you're going to Fort Worth, if you're going to Austin, whatever, wherever it is you're going, Google and find some churches that seem to fit your criteria. And here's what I want you to do. Listen to sermons online start listening to sermons. Now that may not answer all your questions. It most certainly won't. But if you're bored to death after the first 10 minutes, you're probably going to be bored to death sitting in the room too. Um, and if you, if you are listening and you hear some weird off the wall stuff, I mean that you don't have to bother visiting you may not know it's the right church for you by doing this, but you can do some elimination real, real easy by just listening to some podcasts. And by the way, if you go to a church and their sermons aren't online, they're irrelevant. Everybody's sermons are online. Don't even bother with that. When you get there, though, okay, once you get there, let's say you've narrowed it down. You've got like you got like three or four churches. You're like, I kind of like this church. I kind of like this sermon. This guy seemed kind of cool. He was funny, but he also spoke the truth, you know. Visit multiple churches more than once there are some places you can say never to on the first visit however if you like a place go several times go several times because you know you can come to First Baptist Church Wichita Falls and I can preach one good sermon out of four I mean come on you know but you need to come back a couple of weeks in a row to make sure that this guy can preach third know what your non-negotiables are you need to know what you believe um, you need to know what you're going to stand for. You may have to flex on your preferences like, I don't know if I like the music as much at this church, but I, you know, but I like the preaching. It seems, you may have to flex on your preferences, but don't compromise your beliefs. Now, I want to talk about the, the, the idea in that question. I really like the way you put this. Whoever wrote this, I like this. How do I know they're not bending Scripture? Not like they're breaking it, right? They're just kind of bending it there are two things that I would say. Number one is this. In this place, you have been taught truth. And I'm not just saying that about me. But if you've been in this college ministry for any time, you've been taught the truth. Trust the truth. Trust the truth. If you hear something that contradicts what you've been taught, you know, we could be wrong about something. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but you need to step back and go, ah, I don't know. So you want to make sure that it lines up with the truth. Second thing I want to tell you is this. If you're a Christian, you possess the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. In John's gospel, Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. Every now and then, I I can't sleep at night. And I'll watch, you know, you, you turn on television late at night and there are two things that are on anywhere in the Western world. Wrestling and religious programming, right? And the world's asking the same thing about both. Is it real or is it fake? And, and so, you know, I can't watch wrestling very long. I, it's, it's, it's gotten, when I was a kid, I thought it was funny, as, as a, but I can't watch that anymore. So I I'm, am I'm, I'm turned on like this preacher and I'm listening to him and... He he didn't say anything just blatantly wrong, but I thought that don't sound right. There's something about that that doesn't sound right. That's the Holy Spirit saying to me, Bob, this guy eventually is going to reveal that he's a false teacher. So just trust the voice of the Holy Spirit within you. The last thing I'd say to you is this: when you leave here, you go somewhere else, and you find that church, they've got a cool band, they got a great preacher. And he's preaching the truth, and you're pretty satisfied he's preaching the truth. Before you make a commitment to that community, you do one other thing. You go visit a life group or whatever their small group structure is, and you make sure that's a place where you can lock in and do life with people. Okay, That's my best answer to that question. All right? Number four. What is the point of denominations? Matthew 12, 25 says that a kingdom divided among itself will fall. Aren't denominations dividing God's kingdom? A church either teaches scripture or they don't. Um, I wish that the last question, part of that question was as simple as it sounds, um, but sometimes it's not. Because there are top-tier doctrinal issues like the truthfulness of the Bible, uh, the deity of Christ, salvation through uh, grace by faith alone, um, the return of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus. Those are big ticket items for me. I'm, I'm not negotiating on those. Those are my top tier items. But then there, there are issues down here in the second tier that are they're not as important. I have convictions about them. For example, We baptize people the way Jesus was baptized. I think that's the way you ought to baptize. There are good churches that people love Jesus that don't baptize like we baptize. I'm okay with that. But we're different. Therefore, we have different denominations. There are churches who view the gifts of the Holy Spirit different than we view the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're my brothers in Christ. I love them. I have fellowship with them. We have a lot in common. But if we tried to worship together, if we tried to come together, there would be conflict. The kingdom is better served for us to walk in unity on the big ticket items and for us to say, you know what? You have your interpretation of that. I have my interpretation of that. We're not going to argue over it. We're just going to go to church in different places. What what about denominations? Let Let me give you three reasons I think denominations are not a bad thing. Number one is this. Doctrine matters. What a church believes actually does matter. I have a friend who is a pastor in another denomination. We went to college together. And his denomination is in the midst of a huge controversy. And I'll tell you, it's about question number one tonight. Just to be honest with you, it's about sexuality. And his church is in this huge debate right now about are they leaving their denomination or are they staying? And so it's, it's a big, big deal. And for him, doctrine matters. And it does for me too. So doctrine matters. Number two, denominations offer us a structure to do missions. As a church, we are a Southern Baptist church. We contribute every month to what is called the cooperative program. And that allows us to support about 4,000 missionaries in 125 countries around the world. If we we're not a part of a denomination. If we were just doing this on our own, we might could support two or three, maybe four full-time missionaries, and they would be maybe in four countries around the world. But being a part of a denomination means that we get together with other churches like us who believe the same things we do, and we're able to do so much more. It is either addition or multiplication. I'd rather be on the side of multiplication when it comes to this. And third is this, denomination, uh, doctrine matters, uh, denominations offer a structure of missions, and number three, denominations offer accountability that being a freestanding, independent church does not offer. I want to give you an example of that. It's something that's going on in, in our denomination right now, or it has been for the last couple of years. There's been a real problem in some churches, and that nobody's immune And that problem is that there have been people in the ministry in churches who have been sex offenders and they have abused people. And I want to go on record in front of you as saying that is absolutely hideous. That is heinous. That is horrible. Um, I I cannot come up with words strong enough to tell you how terrible I think that is and what I think ought to happen to those people. But here was a problem. For many years, what would happen is this. Um someone would uh, have a sexual encounter with a teenage girl. And there weren't laws at that time to report. And so her parents would say, we want to keep this quiet. We just want this guy fired, send him on down the road, you know, run him out of town. So they'd fire the guy. The problem is he went from Texas to Arkansas and he got another job in another church. And did the same thing. And they'd fire him at the church in Arkansas and he'd go to Tennessee. And five years later, he's done the same thing. Well, our denomination now has put together a system. And we're continuing to get to, to implement this, but we're putting together a system. So if that ever happens, that person's name is going to go on record. And they're not going to be hired in any other church in our denomination ever again because they abused that trust. Now, you can't do that if you're not part of a larger group. There's no framework for that. So I don't think denominations are a terrible, terrible thing. Do I wish we all just believed the same thing and all went to church together and wouldn't it be great? Yes, it would be. But we're fallen human beings and we sometimes see things differently. So, and by the way, I I did want to share this concerning that question. I think this is important. Every day on my prayer list... I have a list of about 15 pastor friends all around the country. But in this city, I pray for seven pastors by name and for their church. And one of, only one of them is another Baptist. Uh, I, I pray for my friend and neighbor, Ben Murray, who's the pastor at City Hope Church. I pray for Lance Bourgeois, who's over at Grace Church. And I, I pray for about five more guys. I pray for them every single day. Just because we don't have the same name on the church doesn't mean we're not on the same team. So if that helps to answer that question, I hope it does. Number five. This was a fun question to try to answer for you. Um, why is it that in the beginning of the Bible, people lived 200 plus years, but now our life expectancy is 80 or 100 years? I thought this is a really good question. Bible question. Maybe I should have led with this one. You know, I'm a little lighter uh, subject. But um, when you read the book of Genesis, what you will find is that people did live extraordinarily long lives. For example, Noah, the story of Noah, Noah and the ark, Noah lived 950 years. And he's not even the record holder. There was a guy named Methuselah, and he lived 969 years. Now, some people find it very difficult to believe that this isn't exaggerated or, or, you know, is this real? But what's interesting is that there have been some ancient documents and tablets found uh, from the ancient Sumerian Empire. And this totally secular source details the ages of some of the ancient Sumerian kings, and they lived seven or eight hundred years. And so we have an independent secular source that actually reflects what the Bible said so and because I actually believe the Bible I believe that this stuff is true but that gives you some evidence to say no it's not just made up it's not just a fanciful fairy tale but here's what we do know that happened you have these people who live a long long time like hundreds and hundreds of years and then you have Noah's flood the or the flood that Noah and the ark right so Noah comes off the ark. He's 350 years old when he gets off the ark, just a spring chicken. And he, um, and he lives another 600 years, so you know, he's pretty young at this point. But what you notice is, if, you did a, if I did, did a graph for you, what you will notice is with each generation after Noah, the lifespan goes down for 12 generations at about 50 years a person on average. And it gets down to where when you get to Abraham, a few generations later, 13 generations later, Abraham lives to be 175. Moses, who comes a little after him, lives to be 120. So the age does go down, just like the question reflected, and the Bible reflects that. So the question is, why is that the case? Well, it seems from the evidence in the Bible that the flood had something to do with that. The environment on planet Earth after the global flood of, of in the book of Genesis was totally different than the environment before the flood. The environment before the flood, it never rained. It didn't have to. There was this perpetual mist or dew that watered the earth. It was kind of it, it was kind of a subtropical uh, constant temperature and, and atmosphere on the earth. But it didn't rain. It just was kind of always humid. Um, but after the flood, you have you have not only torrential it, but then you have droughts and you have famines that came with drought and you have all this different climate change. So that's one reason. The second reason uh, that I believe that took place was something that um, Ken Ham, who is a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, he runs a ministry called Answers in Genesis. Um, he calls genetic degradation. Genetic degradation means this. When Adam and Eve were created, they had perfect genetics. They had absolute perfect genetics. Then sin enters the picture. And when sin enters the picture, you have mutations, you have you have genes that don't line up just right. You have deformities. And as a result of that, the gene pool gets, uh, gets kind of worse and worse. But also, you have something else that's happening. The population is growing. So while the gene pool is degrading, the population is expanding. And so it reaches a point where it levels out. That's my best explanation for that. If you're really interested in that, if you wrote that question, go to answersingenesis.com. And you will find a lot more material than I was even capable of touching with an answer um, here tonight. Number six, do people who believe that Jesus is Lord but also believe extra things, such as Mormons, go to heaven? Now, I'm going to draw a line for you here. Um, Since you asked me the questions, I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to draw a line for you here that I think needs to be drawn. There is a big difference between me and my friends over, say, Ben Murray over at City Hope Church and uh, Lance over at, um, at Grace Church and, and uh, Michael at the First Presbyterian Church. I love those guys. There's a big difference between our differences and my differences with religious groups That would say they are Christian. However, they deny fundamental, the foundational doctrines of Scripture. Now, my questioner asked me specifically about Mormons. So, I would like to respond. I'm going to respond to that in particular. There are a couple of things about Mormonism that needs to be understood. The first is this. That the Jesus of Mormonism is different from the Jesus of the Bible. They, uh, quite frankly, make up things about Jesus that are just not true. Not only that, but they do not believe that Scripture is sufficient. We believe the Bible is sufficient. Here are the answers for eternal life. They would say, well, the Bible has some answers, but it's not the final authority. And uh, Joseph Smith translated you know, the Book of Mormon, and it's kind of one of our final authorities. I want to talk to you for just a moment about that, just because I think it's really important that you know this. Uh, Sometimes people who go to evangelical churches are like the fertile field to be recruited into Mormonism. And I need you to know that I believe it is a cult. And I don't say that like happy, because I have Mormon friends. I I mean that. I have Mormon friends. Friends. Had, have lunch together with friends that I love, but I don't believe they're going to go to heaven with me. And by the way, if they know their doctrine, they don't believe they're going to go to heaven with me. They think they're going to go to another heaven. They think they're going to go to a, a totally different heaven than the Bible teaches. But the problem with Mormonism is that it is a made-up religion. In the early 1800s, a man named Joseph Smith claimed that an angel appeared to him and gave him these golden tablets which no one else has ever seen. The Mormon church doesn't have the gold tablets. No one else has ever seen these things. And he translated from these the Book of Mormon, which he said is another gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse did not make it up on the screens. I'm sorry for that. But if you've got a Bible, I want you to open it to Galatians chapter 1 with me. Galatians chapter 1. Now, I want to refresh refresh you just for a second there on what I just told you. An angel appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him another gospel. That is the testimony not only of Joseph Smith. That is the testimony of the Mormon church. Now, I want you to look. At Galatians chapter one, verse eight, Paul writes this: "But even if we are an what? Say it out loud. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a what? gospel. Gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed." Here's what's so odd to me about Mormonism, that while it claims to be another testament of Jesus Christ, we have a verse of Scripture that absolutely refutes its foundations that was written 2,000 years before, or 1,800 years before Mormonism was ever born. In addition, uh, I would say this. Any religion, any other cult, and I, I, it's, the only way, it's the only word I have to use for it, okay? I'm not trying to be mean. It's a word. Um, that adds to the Bible is dangerous it's just dangerous Um, I'll give you another example the Jehovah's Witnesses the Jehovah's Witnesses don't say they add to the Bible but here's what they did they took the King James version of the Bible and they reworked it to fit their beliefs and so the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult so in answer to the question um, no I do not believe they will go to heaven All right. Let me work it. Uh, Okay. Question number seven. Number seven. If God is all love, why does he allow pain, suffering, and all kinds of evil things to happen? This is a great question. Here's my response. God did not create a world with pain and suffering and evil. God created a perfect world. But then he put the people in it. And the people messed everything up. The Bible says that the whole world, the entire creation, is subject to the curse of sin. That when sin entered the picture, there are a lot of problems that came in. First of all, the whole creation is messed up. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. When sin entered the picture, death entered the picture too. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. For just as one man uh, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin introduced death into our world, and all of creation is under the curse of sin. Our bodies, disease, get diseases, and they age because of sin. These physical bodies will ultimately die because of sin. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like because of one particular thing you did, like you lied, therefore you're going to die. No, it's like sin, big picture sin, the sin, that, the sin nature that we have. The weather is broken. The whole creation is broken. There are floods and fires and hurricanes and earthquakes because, because the whole world is suffering under the curse of sin. So God is love. And he does love you. But pain and suffering are a result of the curse of sin. Number eight. As a Christian, by the way, this is another question I thought. I really appreciate the honesty of this question. As a Christian, where do you draw the line between forgiving everybody regardless of what they do to you and standing up for yourself and saying enough is enough? Thank you for the honesty of that question. It is a great, great question. But here's what I would say to you. Forgiving others and standing up for yourself are not mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. Total forgiveness is the teaching of the New Testament. I must choose to forgive. I love the line that says, when I forgive, a prisoner goes free. And that prisoner is me. My forgiveness sets me free from forgiveness. My desire for revenge and animosity and anger. And so I must choose to forgive. Forgiveness is saying that I will not seek revenge upon you and I will not seek payback. As a matter of fact, the way that I know that I've totally forgiven you is that I am going to seek your best interest. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray that God blesses your life. That is how I am demonstrating total forgiveness At the same time, while I can completely forgive, if you lied to me, I can forgive you, pray for you, never bring it up again, but I don't have to believe you the next time you tell me something you say is the truth and I know it's a lie. Not only that, but here's what I want you to know. You can totally forgive someone, totally forgive them. And not reconcile a relationship. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different agendas. God calls on those of us who are followers of Christ to forgive all people and to forgive completely. To totally forgive people. At the same time. Let's say someone abused you. You should should forgive them. You leave them in God's hands. You don't take revenge. You don't spread the story. You just leave it all to God. That's total forgiveness. You let them go. You put them in God's hands. At the same time, if someone has abused you, not only is it not spiritual for you to try to renew that relationship, it is unwise for you to try to renew that relationship. Now, would it get complicated if they came to you in tears and told you how sorry they were? Yeah, it would. But restoring a relationship is still different than forgiveness. And that would take a lot of trust, rebuilding. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would take. Just, I'm just trying to be authentic with you here, okay? So, forgiveness and standing up for yourself are not mutually exclusive. Number, uh, let me see, where am I? Number nine. Why do we choose our sin? And why is some sin seen as heavier or worse than others? Why do we choose our sin? Because it's fun. That was a joke, okay? But but <laughs> if it wasn't fun, you think people would don't you think people would quit it? Of course they would. We 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 sin because it brings us some pleasure. I mean, think about that. I mean, obviously, sexual sin brings some temporary pleasure. But the operative word there is temporary. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the pleasures of sin are for a short season. The Bible never says sin is unpleasant. When you gossip about when you share some gossip about somebody, it brings people pleasure to do that. If it didn't, they wouldn't do it. So that's why we choose our sin. And... But but on a spiritual level, let me let me give you another sort of more meaty answer to that. Even though we've been saved and have the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, we still have a flesh. And that flesh wars with our spirit nature within us. There's a war going on in t- in, inside you. And our flesh, which is the spiritual side of us it draws us towards sin, is just like my physical flesh. It has an appetite. I'm going to tell you something. An appetite has a very limited vocabulary. It knows two words, more and now. That's what your flesh says. I want more of that, and I want it now. I want more of that, and I want it now. That's all your flesh says. And so, basically, I'm preaching on this this coming Sunday morning, by the way, so I'll answer the question more thoroughly then. So that's why you have a flesh, and you're not going to outgrow that. I I think at some point when I was much younger, I uh I thought like I, I really looked up to my uncles and they were good Christian men. And I would hear preachers preach and say, you know, you we're all sinners, and I'd look over at my uncle and I'd go, I don't think he sins. I mean I, I'm like, surely not. He's a he's a great guy. He's he's you know. But I grew up and I figured out, Oh yes, he does. <laughs> okay, so right. And and I think at some point I thought, I'm gonna get to that level like where I'm not sinning like I was when I was a teenager, constantly, right? But the truth is that we are all drawn toward that. Now, why, are, why is some sin seen worse than others? Well, let me give you a few responses to that. First of all, society deems some sins worse than others. Um, there, there is a difference in a guy getting drunk and a guy abusing a child, Right? Okay, both of those are sin. But in our society, I I, I, I look at those two things as being very different. Um, And some sins do have worse consequences than others. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that if a man looks on a woman lustfully, with lust, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, in that sense, Jesus was saying that both of those sins are equally offensive to God. When I say sin is equal, I don't mean it's equally okay. It's equally horrible. But the consequences of those two sins, if I were to commit them, are different. If I commit the sin of lust, then there might be limited consequences. But let me tell you something. If I commit the sin of adultery, and I get caught, and I would... Because people don't get away with it, okay? I lose my job. My wife divorces me. She marries somebody else. And some other dude tucks my daughter into bed at night. Hello? Yeah, I've thought that through. I've thought that through before. And I don't want that to happen. So Jesus says those sins are both equally bad. But the consequences of those sins in my life would be totally different, right? They'd be very different consequences. So that's why some sin is seen as heavier or worse than others. Number 10, and finally, I gave you a top 10 list. I might give you a bonus one. Uh, I just looked down. How do you know when something has been put on your heart by God or an outside force other than him? Uh, My primary answer to that is simply this. If God is saying it, it will always be consistent with his word. God will never speak anything into your life that is not true to his word. He is always consistent with his word. 15, 16 years ago, I was serving another church, and a guy that I was actually pretty close to in the church, uh, I hadn't seen him in a while. He kind of started avoiding me. Funny things happen when people start avoiding their pastor. You know something's up, you know. And so one day I'm sitting in my office, and another friend of ours comes in and he says, Hey, I need to talk to you about John. John left his wife. He's off chasing some other woman, and like, you know. So I'm like, I'm going to go talk to John. So I go and I find John, and it's private, it's quiet. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, I'm telling you. God told me that I'm supposed to be with her and not with my wife. And I looked him in the eye and I said, that is a lie. I don't know if you came up with it or if it's a lie you listened to from the evil one, but that is a lie because God is always consistent with his word. I thought he was going to slug me, by the way, but he didn't. Um, But he also didn't repent. I wish I could tell you that he did. Um, If God tells you to sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that is inconsistent with his word. Uh, so you know that God always speaks consistently with his word. But past that, let's say that it's not something that's like a commandment. Let's say it's like, what job should I take? You know, you're going to graduate from college and maybe you got a couple of job offers and one of them's in Oklahoma City and one of them's, you know, in Salt Lake City and and you're like, what should I do? I'm going to give you a, just a few words that I think are really important. Number one, seek out godly counsel. Talk to people who are wise and who walk with God. There is wisdom. The Bible says this. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So seek out people who love God and who can give you wise counsel. The second thing I would say is this. Listen to people who really love you. Listen to the people who really love you and don't stand to have something to gain from it, you, you want to hear from people who really love you. But I would also say this some people say, you know, look for circumstances. Look at your circumstances. Uh, like, is it the door open or is the door closed? Now, I hear people say stuff like that all the time. Well, God just gave me an open door. Let me tell you something devil opens doors too. You need to be careful with that. And the other thing is this that sometimes what people interpret as a closed door. Is an obstacle in front of you that God just wants you to persevere through. Just because something's not easy doesn't mean it's not God's will. Sometimes God's will is hard. So be careful with circumstances. All right, I'm going to do, I am going to do this one because uh, I'm going to give you one bonus and then I'm done. All right? You, you ask the questions. I just want to answer as many of them as I can. So I'm going to do this one. Number, number 11. Let's do number 11. Do you think? The seven days of creation were over millions of years since time is man-made. Is there evidence in the Bible towards this? Um, of all the questions that I've padded you on the back told you what great questions they are, this is a, a very complex question. However, I do disagree with the wording of this question. I, I need you to know this. Time is not man-made. It takes the earth exactly 24 hours to rotate on its axis. That's one day. Man didn't make that. It takes the earth 364.25 days to make a trip around the sun. That's one year. Man didn't make that up. Our, our monthly calendars are loosely based on the lunar cycles, not completely. The Romans messed that up. There's a whole long story behind that about the arrogance of some Caesars who wanted their, the month named after them to be longer. I'll give you one quick one. Caesar Augustus, for whom August was named did not like it that Julius had 31 days and he had 30. So he stole a day from February. That's why there are 28 days in February and there's 31 days for two months in a row. It's kind of kind of a funny thing. But God created time. And time is a part of the, uh, of the created order. Now, the question though is, is the seven days of Genesis literal? I'm going to give you uh, my story about that. I grew up in a very small country church. And so I grew up believing what the Bible said, that God created the world and all that's in it in six days. I didn't have a problem with that. And then I went to a state university. Um, And at that state university, I took biology. And I know some of you have told me that you've never had this experience, but I did. I had a couple of biology professors for two successive semesters. Who ridiculed the Christian faith? They, they ridiculed the Christian faith. And so um, as a college student, I began to doubt, you know what was I taught? fairy tales? And then I took a physics class. And my physics professor was a man named David Lobecca. He was brilliant. He was smarter than the biology professors, if you want to know the truth. And he in physics taught this lecture this one day. I will never forget this lecture. I wish I had it on tape. I I just wish I did. In which he basically said, the universe is too complicated to have happened by chance. There has to be a designer. He was kind of an intelligent design guy. But what he said was, he said, however, I don't believe that the days, the six days of Genesis are literal. He said, I think that they are metaphors for eras or epochs of time. Now, he was, I found out later, he actually was a Christian. Um, he just didn't push his Christianity in the classroom, but he, he was a whole lot closer to being Christian than those biology professors were. I'll just tell you that. Um, and I had great respect for him um, after that. And I came to learn that, that he loved Jesus and he saw Genesis differently maybe than I did. And so for a while I adopted that because I thought, okay, it makes sense. That the Genesis model is like epochs of time. And it's a, it's a metaphor. It's Hebrew poetry is what some people would say. And then I began to read and study my Bible more. And um, I love Dr. Lebecca, and I still do to this day and I'm thankful for him. But he's not my authority. And Jesus is. And Jesus seemed to believe that God created things in six days. And I'm sticking with Jesus. So I am a six-day creationist. However, what I would say to you is this. This is one of those. I talked to you about the top-tier issues and the second-tier issues. This is a second-tier issue. Let me tell you why I'm a six-day creationist. I am a six-day creationist. Because if you believe in millions and millions of years, there had to be a lot of dying that took place over those millions and millions of years. I mean, that first single cell amoeba had to die, and then eventually that reptile had to die, and the early mammals had to die and to get to humans. If you believe millions and millions of years. But the Bible says that death entered the world through one man. Adam. And so, I embrace six-day creationism because it is more consistent with the gospel. And by the way, in answer to the question, is there evidence in the Bible towards uh, towards this, the Hebrew word yom only means day. It's used 5,200 times in the Old Testament. It only means day. It, It doesn't mean era of time, epoch of time. So, I hope that what I've done is helped you and answered a few of your questions. I didn't get to all of them. Um, uh, some, it would, we would have been here all night. You'd had to pack of Snickers. Um, we're not going anywhere for a while. But I hope that I, I helped you out and answered some of your questions tonight. I would like to pray for you. Father, I thank you for these students. I thank you for uh, their love for you. I thank you that they want to know more about your word and more about your truth. They want to serve you better. So, Lord, I ask you. Uh, to move in their lives I pray for them over the next few days, especially that they'll be able to finish up their work for this Part of the semester. I know some of them have tests and some of them have projects and Lord give them diligence to be able to finish those I pray for their uh, Being able to go home be with family. I pray that that'll be a time of a great just a celebration for them and just a time to exhale And Lord, I pray that most of all that you will equip us all to make much of Jesus in our friendship circles and our families that people will come to know him. In Jesus' name, amen.